everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 40 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's biweekly podcast featuring insights from the deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, I'm pleased to introduce a lively discussion between Lion Tree executive in residence Betsy Morgan and Kara Swisher, the executive editor of Recode, host of Recode Decode podcast, and the co executive producer of the Code Conference. Their conversation starts, of course, in the tech arena and then goes far afield into current events and, of course, the business of podcasting. I hope you enjoy. Our guest on Kindred Cast today needs little introduction. Kara Swisher is ubiquitous, a renowned journalist and one of the most important voices in the coverage of technology. She is the co-founder and executive editor of Recode, producer and host of the Recode Decode podcast, and producer of the Code Conferences. Kara is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, a frequent guest on CNBC, And of course, she has a zillion Twitter followers that converse with her regularly during her weekly Twitter videos. Kara weighs in on so many different topics these days with grace and intelligence, technology, media, politics, government, economics, infrastructure. Her opinion is highly sought after because she is one of the few journalists who understands and is genuinely curious about how all of these different areas function together. And I must say, I am a bit intimidated (laughs) interviewing one of the world's most prolific interviewers. Hi, Kara. Hi, how you doing? Did you know that we share an old boss? Who? Can you you guess who that is? No, I'm trying to guess where you've worked Um, all the various places. Larry Kramer. Oh, right. Yeah. Where did you work for him? Um, So I worked for him at CBS and you worked for him at the Washington Post. Yes, briefly. Yes. I was a contractor for Larry Um, So he says hi. Hi, Larry Kramer. I was a student. (laughs) So Kara, the first question is perhaps an obvious one. All right. As someone routinely interviewing the biggest of the big, mm-hmm. what's the secret to a great interview as well as a great interviewee? And a bonus question, All right. have you ever considered joining the 60 Minutes team? Oh, I've never been asked, so that would be a problem. So. Not yet? Not yet. I doubt they're going to ask me. No, I have never been asked, actually. It's interesting. For an interview, first of all, 60 Minutes is a great show, notwithstanding all the controversies that are going mm-hmm. on there, which I think are pretty serious. I haven't really done a lot of television. I've done everything sort of either live or now on the podcasts, um, but I'm starting to do it with uh, MSNBC, do interview shows. I have not. That would be interesting. I think it'd be good. I'd be like Mike Wallace. So, you know, that kind of thing. You'd be great. I would be good. But, you know, of course, not going to ask me. I'm going to find some white guy they can put in place there. <laughs> Why would they ask a woman who's actually really <laughs> adept at it? You know, and there's only room for one and Christiana Monopore is there. So you could you go want? toe-to-toe with Oprah. Yeah, right? whatever. <laughs> you know, Oprah's the best. Honestly, Oprah's the best. You know, people discount her because she's so touchy-feely, but I think she's one of the finest interviewers out there. She does get people to say things. Um, she is, she is. What's good. the secret to a great interview? Well, I think most bad interviews are the fault of the interviewer, period. To me, there's no bad interviewee at all when you're interviewing people. And the way I think about it was many years ago when I was very young, I used to go to a lot of theater in Washington, D.C., and there was a show at the Kennedy Center by Spalding Gray. Do you remember him? Oh, he, yeah, of course. He had a sad, yeah, yeah. tragic end. He committed suicide. He was very depressed. But before, he did all kinds of good things, like amazing things. He was an actor and a playwright and things like that. And he did a show, Swimming to Cambodia, which is a monologue about yep. being in that movie. And one of the things that I was really struck by was that he had a show where he sat on the stage. And then right before, as the show started, he picked three different people from the audience, just from the audience. You know, they were not fixed. He did not know them. And he interviewed them. 
And I have to say they were the most riveting interviews I've ever <laughs> seen because every person is interesting. Every person has a story and it was up to the interviewer and the conversation to get that out of him. I'll remember that to this day because I went back like five times and it was every single person was interesting. At one point he found out this one guy had a brain tumor and when he went through and the stories, people don't think they're interesting, but they are. And so I always was thought by that. And so it's always my fault if the interview's not good. It's always because I lack the curiosity or the, the ability to ask the right questions or have a conversation. So one thing I do is I don't prepare for interviews at all. I don't. I mean, I know broadly, you know, about the topics I'm talking about. I know a lot about tech. I keep up with politics and everything else. But I tend not to be overly prepared for these interviews. I think you miss things if you have a list of questions you want to ask. But you'll read a bio. Like you have right here. Right. I have a list of my 32 questions. <laughs> I, wouldn't, we'll, I don't have any. We'll see where we'll I have see No, where. I, I interviewed the CEO of Sweetgreens today, who's a really interesting young entrepreneur. And he's like, where's your list of questions? I goes, I don't know. I don't have a list of questions. I'm just going to start asking things that a normal person would ask. And I think he was surprised because he was scared that I had done this enormous prep on him, that I would get him on something. But I didn't. That's fair. I didn't That's get fair. him. There's not much to get on a salad person. But on a salad person. Yeah. Do you think that company scales? I don't know. Well, it's really interesting. It's an interesting viewpoint towards these things. It's hard to have all that venture capital money. But they are doing some interesting things around AI. They're doing some interesting things around blockchain. I just, I found that interesting. And I don't mind them trying it. And actually, the salad's delicious. I had lunch. It was very good. I had a private equity, just staying on Sweetgreen <laughs> for a minute, I had a private equity executive say to me last week that it's very hard to scale a business that is thought of not past lunch. Right, exactly. That's what they were talking about. They were talking about that. But most of their food comes between 12 and 2 or something like that. But if you can make it very efficient, it could be really interesting. But you're right, absolutely. I eat sweet greens four times a it's week. It's well done. That's why I wanted to interview him because there's lots of efforts of this. Like Itza didn't work so well in San Francisco. I think there's some others. But I like the whole idea of trying to take a genre of a business and change it using technology but not being only about technology. And I like the idea of the way we get anything now, like food or any kind of service has to change because of digital. And I like when someone's trying it in an interesting way. They've got interesting investors. Steve Case, Ted Leonsis is in that, who I've known for years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Henry Elgenbogen. They've got a really interesting group of investors. So I'm interested. That's very cool. Yeah. Since the summer, you've been working with the New York Times as a contributing opinion mm -hmm. writer. Yeah. So being at the Times seems kind of fun. It is. And you're there. Well, I don't go there. But no. but sort of fun to be associated with Associated with it. I literally have been in the building the grand total of one times. Do you think people see you differently than when you work for the Wall Street Journal? I work for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and now this. I thought I would do the third one just because. <laughs> I think the Los Angeles Times is the only one I'm missing. No, I just, I, I was looking around and I was thinking about writing and thinking about some of the topics that I've been pushing, which were tech responsibility. And while I was getting purchased out of Recode itself, you know, people in the industry was reading it. I wanted a larger audience to talk about these issues that I was concerned about. I started becoming very concerned about tech's impact on society about two years ago. And I kept writing about it in Recode, but it wasn't gaining the kind of traction I wanted. And so I thought the New York Times is a global, broad audience. And so mm -hmm. what I thought is I would bring tech to the masses and then the masses to tech. And that's what I was thinking of. It kind of goes back to what I said at the top about mm -hmm. that curiosity. Yeah. And do you feel like you have a curiosity? You, you know you have a curiosity yeah. far wider than just technology. Yes, of course, because technology is embedded in everything now. That's mm -hmm. every single thing is being affected. We were just talking about a food thing. Like, would you think about that? Or healthcare? I say this a lot. Everything that can be digitized will be digitized everything. And so you've got to think of it in those terms. Everything gets changed rather dramatically and not in the old style, like the way tech took over media, which it totally did. But think about like just commerce with Amazon, every area of transportation, healthcare eventually will. That's the hardest nut to crack. So you have to think of how everything flows through technology to, it's sort of like covering 
the industrial revolution, right? Everything's going to go through manufacturing or whatever it is. I find it really important to cast a broader net than just, wow, Apple came out with this gadget last week. Wouldn't you say that you're one of the few journalists in tech that has been able to stand above the micro and Mm -hmm. understand the macro. And my favorite example of that is your summer, this past summer interview with Mark Zuckerberg. Right. That that was a leading story in mainstream media. It was. And that was the lead story on the Today Show. Yeah, because it's a hell of an interview. That's why, you know, it's so interesting. Everyone's like, well, Mark Zuckerberg did 10 interviews. I don't care. He did my interview. And that's the only one that mattered. I think it was a big story because people began to understand the kind of impact Mark had and how much he didn't want to take responsibility for the power he had. And I think I got, I think I made people understand his sensibility. A lot of that interview, if you listen to it carefully, I don't say a lot, actually. I was changing my methodology in that interview. For example, the part about Alex Jones, when I started to ask him about Alex Jones and whether he should be thrown off the platform, and Mark was defending that why he shouldn't. Of course, he changed a week later, which I knew he was going to do. But I decided not to get in his face because I wanted people to understand what he meant and what he said and not give him the chance to say, oh, she's twisted my words. So speaking of interviews, Mm -hmm. you have a big interview coming up in a couple of weeks. You're talking to Hillary Clinton. A third time, yep. A third time Mm -hmm. at the 92nd Street Y. You've Mm -hmm. already told us that you're not going to prepare for that interview. No, I don't have to. Um, She keeps giving me material. (laughs) What do I need to do? But how do you you keep that conversation from her just going over old news? I stop her. I don't let her talk about old news. Staying on Washington for a second. You started as a journalist. You went to school in Washington at Georgetown. You started a career in Washington. Mm -hmm. You continue to spend time there. What's changed in the last 30 years in Washington, and has anything changed for the better? It's interesting. I just got a house there. I'm living there part-time, and so I'm spending a lot more time watching it. It's exactly the same as when I left. It feels like the capital, essentially, like in Hunger Games. What's interesting is I feel like people are still doing the ridiculous dance that everybody does, where they say things publicly, maybe a little bit more because it's online or on screamy cable or something like that. And then they go to these dinner parties and just are very cordial to each other. And I just find that just endlessly fascinating. I was at a dinner party where there was right wing and left wing people and they were having whatever dinner they were having. And having their delightful sparring. One of the right-wingy people said something that offended me, and I said, that's disgusting. And everyone was like, oh, Kara, come on. I'm like, why do I have to say, come on? Why can't we say it's disgusting? I'm sorry. You just said something completely disgusting, and you're actually inaccurate, too. And it's a weird place. Washington remains. I find them to be useless. I don't know what else to say. Like, watching those hearings for Mark Zuckerberg, for example, they, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be able to really get anything done. And I see why people across the country are so frustrated with Washington. That dinner party culture is a much different dinner party culture than, say, New York, yes. right? Or yeah. San Francisco. They're meaner in New York. San Francisco, all they talk about is blockchain. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> blockchain. They act like nothing's going on in this country. You know all right. I, mean? all right I, I have on my list of 30 questions. I have one blockchain question right. for you, which is, or one crypto question, which is... I read somewhere that you bought Bitcoin, Bitcoin ages ago and, and lost the drive. I can't find it. I bought <laughs> 10 of them. I cannot find it. I put it on a drive and I was doing a story. It was a while ago when it was just starting to get noticed. And someone I covered, not a friend of mine, w- was mentioning it at a dinner party and said, you should buy some, Karen. I'm going, I'm not really going to buy this stuff, but I think I'll write about it or talk about it. And I met with Wences Casares, who did- He's fabulous. Yeah, Zappo. And I met with a guy who did Coinbase. I think Coinbase, one of them early, the guy who used to do the video thing. And so I just got interested in it. And so I just did a transaction and I bought 10 and I, I put it on it's in like it's some like box. A college tuition. It's in some box. I, I might have thrown it. I'm sure I threw it out. I don't keep those stupid things because I think they're dangerous. I don't know. 
Do you feel like that's the only thing San Francisco talks about these days? Blockchain? No, no, no. I think a lot of people are talking about trying to sort out sort of this tech clash that's coming at them. They're feeling badly. A, a lot of people are moving out of San Francisco, which is interesting. I just ran into someone else yesterday here at an event, and he's like, hi, Kara. I'm like, what are you doing here in Los Angeles? Well, we've moved here. And I was like, why? You're a venture investor. What are you doing here? And it was really interesting. He was like sick of San Francisco. Another, Dan Rose, who was the uh, head of partnerships at Facebook, left. He's living in Hawaii now. Shervin and Travis, Shervin Peshavar and Travis got out and went to Miami. Along with Emil, Michael, who was all at Uber, they left. Although they had their tail between their legs, I think. All right. So U.S. retail sales are expected to grow 4% during the holiday season. Mm -hmm. E-commerce is expected to grow 16%. Yeah. There's a lot of companies out there that are doing both, mm -hmm. that are doing some traditional retail and some e-commerce. Do you see those folks as the future winners? Doing the Allbirds, both. Flagship Store, or the Warby Parker, 100 stores by the end of 2018. Are those the brands that are the winners? I think Amazon's the winner. <laughs> Just Amazon. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's really interesting because in buying this new house, I got some stuff. I bought all the furniture in the house, so I didn't have to do a lot of that. I was trying really hard to buy locally. I tried really hard. Like I wanted in to go, DC. In DC. I tried yep. to go to local stores. But I got to tell you, every experience I had with regular retailers like CB2, or I did okay with room and board, but it took a long time to get what I wanted. But I was buying a couple of things, even just small things. One, either it wasn't in their stores because they have only limited inventory in a right. store, or they were rude or it was hard to get. Like, it took forever. I ordered something from CB2 and they sent the wrong thing and it took 10 days and it was the wrong thing in 10 days and then I was with that. It was such a ridiculous owner's thing and I literally went on Prime Now to buy a bud frame because CB2 had sent me the wrong one and Amazon had it to my house in two hours. Two hours. It was like... What kind of thing? And so I really tried hard it's not like to shop. No comparison. No comparison. Amazon delivered everything on time immediately for a great price, or the same price or a great price. I really felt terrible. And the only thing that stopped me was there's a local hardware store called Logan Hardware. The customer service is superb. Superb. Everywhere you go, there's someone wanting to help you. Really easy to shop. I love the quirkiness of it. I like the store. So that was great. And then there was another store called Home Away, right on 14th Street. And, and these are single operator single stores. operator stores. I think Logan Hardware is. Yeah, it's, it seems to be an Ace Hardware, but I, whatever. It's a great store. It's a great store experience. Customer services would keeps me going there, and I'd rather get it from them than Amazon because it's a, two blocks away. It's very easy to go, mm -hmm. but almost no digital things that where I could order it in advance and pick it up. There was very little of that going on there, and then this other one, Homeway, which had really quirky, interesting items for the house that were cool. I know I didn't want to spend my life trying to find them on Amazon. Whoever had curated that had curated it beautifully. And so everything you do in commerce, especially if you're a physical retail store, has to be experiential. It's got to be beautiful. It's got to be great customer service. It's got to be different. Everything else, Amazon, period, period. And I literally was trying hard not to shop on Amazon, which I thought was interesting. Will it make you sad if Amazon continues to roll out these cashierless stores? I won't even go to those. I think I'll just use them for delivery options. Every store should be cashierless. I don't see why you have to stand on a line for anything anymore. It should be you self-checkout. Self and it also, out. when you walk in a store, if you're going to do a physical store, you walk in and they know who you are. Some way they know through your phone, they can authenticate you. And then they know what you bought. I have this big diatribe that Tim Cook thinks is funny, but going into an Apple store, they should know that I've been an Apple store customer for 25 years, or whatever, how long they've had the stores around. They have the data. They have the data. Why don't they know that I bought this, this, and this, and this? And, and then the last someone time you come were in up was to you, week. hey... What are you looking for, Kara? I know you're a great, because I'm a great customer there. So why don't I ever get extra special service when I go in there? 
I would let them authenticate me. That's a, a retailer I trust, a seller I trust. Instead, I wait in line behind like this teen who's sexting, trying out their products. And I'm like, get off the friggin' thing. I want to look at it. I feel like I, they should come and pet me and give me things. And here's a soda, a very a La Croix, perhaps. I don't know. Just something. What does Tim Cook say? Oh, he laughs. I just think they should know who I am when I come in because I'm a good Apple customer. And so I think more and more, whoever you are, they have to know who you are, especially if you agree to be one of their customers. I think about Patagonia that way. I always talk about Rose Marcario, who's the CEO Mm -hmm. of Patagonia. You know what you're getting from them. There's certain things you just want to start to go to those retailers that have a combination of retail, online, and knowledge about you. And if you start to trust them, I think you have a leg up. Amazon is winning on all those. It's like the lesson from the community store. Right. Right. It's a lesson from the hardware store. Right. That that recognition that you walked they in the door. They know just who I they am. They know what I got last time. I never had a problem in that store. And I know it, retail has become so onerous. I just was with the CEO of Walmart, who I think he's trying really hard to really do things at Walmart that other companies like Instacart, Flipkart that don't eat their lunch at Amazon. And so I think it's really interesting to wonder if someday we're not going to have these 100,000 square foot stores where we wander around and hunt and gather. like It's literally like hunt and gathering, really, when you go to retail now. And it should not be in any way. It should know what you want. It should offer you things using AI and stuff like that. And so I think the commerce sector is about to see an even bigger change than it has. So staying on Walmart, Walmart certainly has the cash to get there. Do you think they have the tech chops or the curiosity? It's not natural to them. At Walmart, they bought a couple companies whose executives are very savvy. But, you know, it's just it's a game of beating Amazon now for Walmart, really. I also think someone we interviewed on this podcast, Jenny Fleiss, who came from Rent the Runway, is over there now sort of helping them think about those things. So those types of hires Yeah, but can't, you know, do those people want to live down in Bentonville, Arkansas? Do you have to live down in Bentonville, Arkansas? You know, Walmart, fascinatingly, was early to technology in terms of store SKUs and things like where milk sold. They were very early to that game, but now they've got to really step it up. That was the last era, and they have to move up faster. They're trying. They're trying. It's going to be tough. Just the way it's tough for AT&T right now to compete on content. Do you ever imagine saying AT&T was on its back leg? But it kind of is with all the stuff that Netflix is doing and Google and Amazon and stuff like that. So 70 streaming content services yeah. in the U.S. alone. And there won't be 70. Right. Warner Media makes 71. And what do you make of that? There's and not going to be 70. Do you subscribe to any of those streaming services? Hulu. Not Netflix. Netflix, yes, of course. Netflix yes. and Hulu. Yeah. Netflix and Hulu. Yeah, I do. I had HBO on my home, my one in San Francisco, but then when I was in D.C., I decided not to get it because I just watch it online. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to an HBO and things like that. Um, I'd buy it if they have good stuff, sure. Yeah, and if you couldn't get it elsewhere. But can you imagine paying for TV now? Paying for TV. We never thought we'd pay I for know, TV. I know, it's crazy. I'm yeah. paying a lot, right? Yeah. That master But I don't think there'll is... be 70 of them. I don't know how it's going to shake out. You know, all these companies are owned by three companies, right, at some point. You'll have a package of some sort. I should say, middle of the podcast, we have to give a shout out to the Crooked Media folks because right. yes, we are sitting here. in we're Los sitting. Angeles yes. um, at the Crooked Media Studios. This is a Lux studio, man. I hear podcasting is a good business. I guess yeah, it is. It yeah. is. Well, you know that. No, um, I don't have an office like this. I have a little closet at Vox Media. So three, four guys with limited media experience moved to L.A., start a wildly successful company that mm-hmm. in one year has a top 10 podcast and gets a special series on mm-hmm. HBO. Yeah. Should MSNBC and CNN be scared? Yes, they should. Should Joe Scarborough be nervous? I think so. 
Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? I mean, I think this is really interesting. They're really playing to their audience really well. They have an audience of people who love them like crazy. You know, it's, it's a lot of white dudes, let's be clear, like who like these guys. <laughs> they happen to be a lefty version of the right wing stuff because there's a whole bunch of Joe Rogan and stuff like that on the right. Rightish. I guess he's rightish, right? What is he? He thinks he's center, but I think he's, I think he's rightish. Yeah. You'll see a lot of people who have really compelling voices and points of view that are doing very well. And so the, all the networks have to think hard about differentiating themselves and doing different things. The Scream Fest that is cable is really not a great product, as far as I can tell, right? And we're not learning anything. Nothing. I like can't listen to it. I like it, and I like it only because it's sort of weirdly formulaic. But it's familiar. It's familiar. Young people definitely don't want to listen to that stuff. They just don't. They want something that's funny and smart and analytical and quick. They definitely aren't going to settle for the way things are done. The reason those all those companies do it is because it's cheap and easy to do, where people just debate things. But it's so formulaic. Like you have a screamy person from the left with a screamy person on the right, and then someone in the middle going, oh, well. There's no illumination happening at all. And I think when you're on the Pod Saves America stuff or, or some of the other really good podcasts, you learn something or you're entertained. I have like a criteria for products I make. They have to at least be one of these things. Entertaining, useful, must-have, or make money. Now, if they have all these things, fantastic. They have to serve one of these things. And when I think of, for example, my podcast, I think it's entertaining. I think it's useful. I think nobody does interviews like I do. Mm -hmm. And we make money. Hey, that's winner. That's a winner product. Same thing with our events and things like that. And, and for definitely for Pod Saves America, it's entertaining. It's useful. You don't get those voices anywhere else. And it makes money. Winner. And the Crooked Media guys have taken a page from you in that yes. you have sponsorship yes. dollars, mm -hmm. you have event dollars. Yes, they do a lot of live events, yeah. You know, so it's a multiple revenue yeah. stream business. You which go where the customer is. Is the future of it media. For now, for now, until it's something else. I don't know what that'll be. You've raised capital yourself. Mm -hmm. In 2015, you sold mm -hmm. your company to a venture capital-based company, Vox Media. Right. We love. Yay, Jim mm -hmm. Bankoff. Mm -hmm. What are your... Thoughts on the state of VC-backed media these days? I think it's hard. I think it's going to be. I mean, Jim would say this. I was just with him this weekend. And uh, it's really hard. It's a lot of midgets. Like, where do they go? Where does it go from here? And you know, at one point, they were all going to be acquired by the bigger media companies. But now, due to valuations and all kinds of reasons, that's not happening. First of all, most of them create great products. They do. They really have great stuff coming. BuzzFeed has amazing stuff. I was just with the news editor at Shawnee Hilton at a, at a party, and the stuff they create is wonderful and so much better than what's in mainstream media. The thing is, the economics are tough, no matter how you slice it. They're trying different things. They tried video at, say, BuzzFeed, or Vox has tried video and things like that. Like Eater is such a good site. It does so many amazing things. Curbed is amazing. This is all Vox Media Properties. Mm -hmm. does amazing stuff. We do amazing stuff. Verge does. The question is, what's the best way to monetize it? Is it a subscription? Is it sponsorship? Is it events? Is it different things like that? And they're all trying really hard, but media is always a tough business, and it's tough for the big people now. And especially with Google and Facebook following out the business models. You have to separate a great product from a business plan kind of thing. And so I think of all of them, Vox probably has the most stable kind of revenue stream. And at the same time, it's got to figure out which way to get through, how to get through into the bigger numbers and how you break through. And that's going to be hard. Do you think if the valuations weren't so high, there wouldn't be such a microscope on them? Possibly. For I think, whether it's yes. BuzzFeed or Vice or Because you'd imagine they would get bought, all of them, or any of them, or pieces of them. One of them would go maybe public and the rest of them would get bought. That's what you might see. And that hasn't happened. It didn't happen. I think the valuations were high. I remember that's one of the reasons I sold because these crazy valuations were going on. And I thought, I'm going to get at it. I'm not going to win. I'm going to lose here. I'm going to get trampled. Right. I don't want to stay too long at the party. 
Yeah, exactly. We had just been funded and we had a lot of money. We had all the money left, essentially. And I was like, this is not going to turn out right. I'm too little. I'm just too little. It wasn't at all a matter of running out of cash. It was no. a matter no, of... No, we had all of it. ...going to watch the, the no, market we had, turn. We spent a million of it, of $12 million. Yeah. yeah. You could see it. You know, I've been very attuned to it because I write about it, but you could see it coming. And so you wanted to be part of a bigger organization. And then now, but the bigger organizations are having these existential crises. The big, the NBCs, the ABCs, CBS, all the, you know, Disney's. And look at Disney buying up all the Fox stuff or the Murdoch's News Corp stuff. So great TV, still mm-hmm. being made at a high price. Yes. Favorite show of yours is Madam Secretary. I love, I love Tia Leone. I know, I love I her too. I have a massive crush on her. She um, liked one of my things this week. I, I saw I never that. once cared, but except for her. It's so old school television, I can't believe, it's sort of like West Wing. I think that's why I like it, because I have such an affection for West Wing. I love West Wing, like do who does? Do you remember her on The Naked Truth? Years ago, no, she had a great show in the nineties. She, she had. A, I don't care. Her movie where Armageddon happened. She died on the beach. I loved it. I don't care what she's in. She can just show up in anything. But I like her clothes, and I like her. I like a lot of shows. I watch it mostly with women characters. It's interesting. I love Homeland. I think she's great. I'm trying to think what I watch a lot of. I love Maisel, Mrs. Maisel. I thought that was a great show. Was that Amazon or Netflix? Amazon. 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 Thank you, Amazon, for Mrs. Maisel. So another topic, obviously near and dear to both our hearts has been the underrepresentation of women oh, in, yes. in tech and media. So when our teenage children, your boys and my daughter, mm-hmm. she's 14, and their generation run Silicon Valley in New York City, are things going to finally change? No. No. Why? We just were arguing about someone grabbing the Supreme Court joke. Come on. Oh, we're still in Clarence Thomasville. It's astonishing. And in we're still 20, arguing. In 20 years, will it be different in 20 years? We haven't learned anything in no. the last 20 years. No. But- I'm firmly, no. No. It's gotten worse, I think. It's gotten worse because we all know better. When we covered Ellen Pau or Susan Fowler, which is Uber, and Ellen was at Kleiner Perkins, I've said this a million times. Every single woman I met in Silicon Valley or talked to, because they followed our coverage really closely, had a story. They had 10 stories. Every woman I know has 10. I have a man groping me in high school stories. And me, would you imagine trying to grope me? No, you don't, you don't want to grope me because I'll break your arm. But it's happened. Like every single woman has one of those stories. And every man who is a good man. Now, I, I was just talking to Tommy. He's like, oh, I didn't know about guys like that in high school. Doesn't even know it was happening. That's the thing is nobody right. talks about right. it. And that was the same thing with the coverage. Every woman has a story from some aggression at work to really bad. Most people aren't in the way bad area. Most people are in the sort of middle zone and they've got a few little remarks. I had mm-hmm. a remark after I was pregnant about how much work I could do as if I had the baby strapped to my bike and I'm in the good earth. And I'm picking turnips. Like, yeah, are you crazy? Exactly. I don't need that much help. I have a thing called a nanny and I have some money. Like everyone has those stories and then you get to the sort of gross groping stuff and then you get to the really awful stuff. But everyone right. has somewhere along that. Somewhere period. on the continuum. At least 10, by the way. Every woman has at least 10 instances of one of those things. Every good man was like, what? You're kidding. How did that happen? How did they How did they miss out? Or how did we not tell them? Or why did we not? Why don't we start to examine that? Because I think it's not the fault of the women for not telling them, but they didn't know. I'm sure many of them would have done something about it had they known, but it was really, the Kavanaugh thing was so eye-opening to me that nothing has changed. Well, then maybe that's our role as, again, parents of teenage children. Oh, yeah. To be able to say... 100%. 100%. You have to talk about this. Right, we do. My sons and I talk about it quite a bit. Interestingly, my mother, who's a Fox News watcher, she doesn't like Trump, which is really interesting, but she doesn't not like him now, which is, to me, really interesting. She disliked him a lot. Now she's like, ugh, whatever, like kind of thing. She was articulating this, you know, maybe she's not telling the truth thing. Like maybe, who knows, whose side, you know, that kind of thing. That's what happens. 
which was appalling to me. And I just nearly like banged her with a pot. Maybe that was the generation. Like, will you give and her a generation And then I said, well, what pass? happened to you? And she goes, oh, it happened to me all the time. I'm like, so why don't you believe her? It was like the most fascinating discussion. Yeah. And then my son came in and said, he calls her Lulu, Lulu, you know, I've pulled teenage boys off of girls when they're drunk. That's one of my instructions to him. He has to do that when mm -hmm. that happens mm -hmm. to his friends who are girls, make yep. sure they're okay at parties. And he's a big guy. So I'm like, you take that guy. And he's the guy him. to do it. Yeah. Right. He's brought people home and things like that. And he said, you know, I pulled people off. And my mom was like, oh, you have? And she goes, well, that girl shouldn't have been drunk. Then that's the second. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like typical. And then my son, I love my son so much. He goes, when people are drunk, they didn't ask to have sex or ask to be groped. Just because they're drinking doesn't mean that. And I was like, oh, my God, my work is done. Like, that's what I thought. You know what I mean? Right? He's very much realized that these things happen to women and that it's different. And that's what I want. I want him to the understand. Awareness. The, the awareness. The awareness of the possibility. And my other son is more like, men don't like to get blamed for everything. And I go, you're absolutely right, because most men are good. Many men are good, not most. I would say many, many, many men are good. And everyone's made a little mistake along the way, and everyone's said something stupid. I've said a billion things that are stupid. But I want them to be aware of the situation so that they can feel something beyond themselves. That empathy is really hard. And in this society, understanding empathy is really it. It's really hard at all yeah. levels. Kara, my last question, and, sure. and I'll re reframe it a little bit, was going to be about your retirement. <laughs> like when you're going to retire, never. what will you do? I just do? had this discussion. But I kind of want to say, Kara Swisher can never, never retire. Never retire. I'm just going to fall down dead someday, die and share, or else I'm going to just disappear. Just disappear off the face of the earth kind of thing. What's it called when they, you go up to heaven? Oh, what's it like called? Like an ascension. Like yeah, a, the ascension. No, you know, no, but it's my brother made a bumper sticker. My aunt's a born again Christian. And when they're pulling all the Christians up to heaven, everyone disappears. And when I said, when this happens, can I have your stuff? <laughs> we did it for her. And she's like, that's not very nice, Karen. I'm like, well, you're going to heaven. So what do you care? What do you need that? You leave all that stuff What do you need that crock pot for? We're going to be down here on shitty earth here. You know, I'd like the crock pot. No, I'm not going to retire. I was thinking, I would literally have this discussion this weekend. Someone was like, I'd like to do this. I think it was with Walt. Walt Musburg was at something with me this weekend. He was talking about his retirement. I'm like, I am never going to retire. I'm just not. I'm going to be more and more crotchy as I get older, and people will like it. Well, the world needs you. Supposedly. Allegedly. Kara Swisher. Now, let me just say one thing yes. my grandmother said. Yes. The, the graveyards are full of indispensable people. So, they don't. The world needs Kara Swisher. <laughs> just for today. Maybe Thank, tomorrow. Thanks for coming on the line. Thank you podcast. so much. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.